electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Summer is coming to a close, and that means the streaming wars are about to get a lot more real. Apple released a trailer for The Morning Show, one of the big series slated to hit its Apple TV Plus service this fall. And Disney just gave us more details behind its slate of shows for the Disney Plus service that launches in November. Oh, of course, uh, at the same time, Disney and Sony just got a divorce. Sony got custody of Spider-Man. We'll see what that means. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I am John Ford from CNBC here at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square. Back with me this week to talk media and tech Ed Lee of the New York Times. Yes. Ed, great to have you. Uh, so let's start off talking about Disney Plus and this slate. The streaming uh, wars are coming, yeah. They, they really are. I, I want to get to Spider-Man because yes. I think I have a pretty hot take on this. <laughs> yes, I want to hear it. Uh, not the traditional take, but I, I like a lot of what Disney's putting out there. Oh, the yeah. Mandalorian. Oh my God, it looks, looks so good. Awesome. Yes, right. Uh, if you're if you're a Star Wars fan, that's exactly what you wanted. Everything about that, and of course, we're just seeing the trailer. Like it looked really great. Uh, and just that whole expo, their, their, their biennial fan expo that they did, they did a great job of showcasing sort of the next things to come and making you excited for it. They had, they had 300 people lining up just to, get, to pay in advance. They were doing like <laughs> a special deal where you could get a three-year commitment. You buy into it for three years and you get a, a, a much more discounted price. I think everyone stood in line for that. So Ewan McGregor is going to reprise his role Obi-Wan. as Obi-Wan yeah. Kenobi, but for TV. So kind of bringing that Netflix, HBO type movie feel to TV. Uh, also, three new live action right. Marvel shows. We talked about The Mandalorian, She-Hulk, and Ms. Marvel yeah. also. Maybe the female superheroes are going to get their due on TV, right. You'll, which yeah. they didn't so much get. In the movies, because we expect Bigger Black play Widow on streaming as well. than in the theaters, yeah, yeah, probably, yeah, exactly. And then um, Spider-Man. So <laughs> here's <laughs> this, the one, right? <laughs> here's the thing. I mean, everybody, everybody yeah. that I know who is into movies is talking about this. Uh, long before Marvel was a, a big deal in movies, before before Iron Disney Man, bought it, right? Exactly. Before Disney bought it, uh, before Robert Downey Jr. signed up for Iron Man right. and really kind of made it, Marvel was on the ropes. The comics business was in steep decline, and they sold the movie rights to Spider-Man to Sony. Right, yeah, and and Sony made a whole bunch of. Movies. I really liked the. Uh, Toby I like the Tobey Maguire the re- that first that first series yeah. of, of movies that were the first great. two yeah. anyway. The third one was eh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the first two I really liked, and then they rebooted it with Andrew Garfield, whatever. And now th- th- they had done this deal right. a few years ago, putting Spider-Man back into, into the, the MCU, into the Marvel universe. That Kevin Feige, the producer, and he was the the sort of the creative hand, the creative production producer guy behind that whole series and of the newly the rebooted Spider-Man with, um, who is the guy, who's the British guy who plays him now? I forget his name. Uh, Tom Holland. Tom Holland, you got yeah. it, right. So he, it's, it's funny, there's all these YouTube clips of him sort of blowing, you know, sort of like sort of plot points in like these interviews that he's, that he's known for. <laughs> he's like a very funny guy. So I, no, I think that was an important part of the fandom around the, the new Spider-Man because it's part of this whole Marvel universe. That's why you, got, you saw that reaction of, wait a minute, they're not going to be producing those, those Spider-Man movies anymore. It'll just be with Sony. So they'll still be Tom Holland. They'll still be Spider-Man movies, but it'll be a wholly Sony production, and you won't see Kevin Feige's hand. I think that's the key. That's a concern, I think. Well, my What's your concern, take? What's your take? Yeah, my concern is the other way around. I think Disney screwed up here. Okay, okay. Disney's got the hot hand now. They just did the Avengers thing, yeah. wrote a lot of that on Robert Downey Jr. and then the other people who they brought in right. who have not all turned out to be bankable movie stars outside of the comic right. book canon, I would point out. We saw how Men in Black uh, that did. That is true. So, so uh, th- they brought this back. I think Tom Holland and the potential for Miles Morales, kind of the, the next version of Spider-Man, yes. is some of the best young talent the best young characters that Marvel has known in its canon right now. And we kind of forget, but 
this is hard to do because, you know, Marvel's been on a streak. Right. Making these movies is hard to do. The Hulk movies flopped. Oh, yeah. They, were, they them, were not good. They right? were not good. Yeah. They were not great. They did well with Avengers. Who knows if they're going to continue to do well. They wanted to renegotiate the deal Darth Vader style. <laughs> right, exactly. With Sony. Right. So, Sony bet on Spider-Man before this was a big deal. They that were is true, putting yeah. all the money up. Marvel was getting free money, 5% gross on the back end. Marvel wanted to renegotiate, put 50% of the money in, but then get 50% of the profits. Money, money out, exactly. And Sony yeah. said, no, we've been doing the Spider-Man thing for a long it's time. It's our biggest said, franchise. We're yeah. not going to give you half of that. Please, hello. Well, why would I give you half the equity in my house? Just because you're really good at selling a redesign. No, you know what? House, Actually, right? I, I think I, that's a convincing argument. I like your take. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think you're basically saying, well, you know what? They should have just kept up the current deal to maintain the relationship and, you know, keep up that whole that whole enterprise around Spider-Man, around the larger universe. Uh, maybe have more spinoffs and streaming. Uh, yeah, no, I think you're. I think you're probably right. I think and that's a smart. Their argument was Kevin Feige's busy. He doesn't have time to spend on something <laughs> that we don't have a lot of skin in the game. Yeah, that guy can't ever be busy. That he's producing everything <laughs> under the sun at this point. Like, of course he's not. You know. Oh he, my goodness. He's used to busy. There's a point, right? And so. plus, if you do this deal, you get to keep Spider-Man in the MCU, and that's going right. to make me want to see these other movies more, especially when you're losing yeah. Robert Downey Jr. and some of these other people. I, I think they made a mistake. They're going to have to get back to the table. If Marvel, any of these next Marvel movies bombs, I think they're going to have to go back to the table and say, eh, Sony, about that Spider-Man. That is true, but also the same is true on the other end, right? If, if the Sony, entirely Sony-produced Spider-Man bombs or doesn't do as well as, as anticipated or as, as had in previous movies, they might want to come back to the bargaining table. They say, might, hey, but they've had bombs before. Spider-Man they 3. <laughs> they've, they learned how to, they've learned yeah. how to live with bombs <laughs> they can right survive now. That. So I, I guess that's a good point. I think at the same time, the bigger picture on the whole Marvel Universe, they're in what they call phase four of it, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the next whole iteration. You're going to see sort of some of the more minor characters from the, the, the latest iteration sort of get more of a, a play this time around. You mentioned a lot of the, the, the female characters that are going to She-Hulk, etc. So I think that'll be interesting. I think they're already sort of heading in a slightly different direction, mm -hmm. smartly. Um, and uh, ultimately, you just they've built this great fan base. People are going to come out. They're going to watch. They're going to sign up for the streaming service. So I think Disney sort of overall has done a great job. But I think you're right. I think with the, with the Spider-Man thing, they probably took a misstep there. Now, but before we move on, on the streaming tip, I want right. to talk about Apple TV Plus right. and The Morning Show. Because this trailer came out. I mean, you know, it's got Reese Witherspoon. Big names. Got Jennifer Aniston, yeah, right? Steve Carell, right? Steve Carell. Yeah. He's got, the, he's got the fire poker, like, uh, on, on the flat screen TV. That was sort of the signature sort of frame from that trailer, I thought. Why is this show so white? That's my <laughs> issue. That's my only issue here. No, you know what? I, because, look at 100 morning television. 100% agree. Look at the biggest shows on morning television. They are not that ethnically monolithic. Right. And typically, what has happened in TV you know, look at look at uh, Disney and Thor, right? Look at Asgard. Yeah, they got black people in Asgard. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's exactly supposed to right. be Norse myth. They and can't get black people on morning TV. Come on, Apple. And the next and the next iteration of, of the of the of the Marvel universe we're talking about, there's going to be a lot more people of color, more yeah. women involved. So I think they're they're sort of taking a step in that direction. That I think speak to current concerns and what, what it should have always been anyway. So I think Which is what makes this morning show thing from Apple look weird to me. It does look weird, but at the same time, I think what the show, from what sources have been telling me, has really been trying to hew towards what's been happening in current events on morning shows in the last few years, which we've seen a lot of you know, uh, except some moments, with no black people hosting. Except with no black people hosting, right? Which, if you think about, if you look at morning shows, there are black people hosting, right? right? That's what so I'm that that's, part has been that's overlooked, absolutely. But from what I've, what I've been told, people have gotten early looks at the first few episodes. They say it looks really good, right? right. So it'll be compelling. My bigger issue is how does, if, if you saw the trailer, at the end of the trailer, they've got this with subscriptions, right? You can have access. There's a little note, notation around that because there was a question mark as to, wait, are they going to make this free to people who have Apple devices or are they going to charge? What are they going to charge? So they're going to charge. Uh, there was a report, I think, in Bloomberg a few weeks ago. They said they're looking at $10 a month, which is what Apple Music is. $10 a month, even $5 a month for, what, two, three, four shows that they're going to release? Like, who's going to pay $10 for a handful of shows at, at the release date? That I don't get. That part doesn't make sense to me. Disney, when they launch it, they're going to have a whole library of stuff, plus all the new stuff that they're, they're, they're planning for that service. 
I think that's a misstep on the part of Apple. I think mm. they haven't figured out really, they've never really presented a cogent media strategy. I don't think they've really understood how programming really works and what you're really trying to sell the consumer on a, on, on a subscription basis. So four or five shows, this show looks compelling, the morning show, yes, despite the whiteness of it. Um, <laughs> or to some people because of the whiteness. Or maybe to some people because of the yes. whiteness of it. But I, I don't know, I can't imagine, I, I don't understand the, the logic behind charging Ten, even five dollars a month for for just a handful of shows. Yeah, yeah well, that's an issue. I mean, some people will buy whatever Apple puts out there, whatever <laughs> the price. Uh, our diversity game is strong here on Fort Knox. Top Knox journalists from <laughs> all walks of life. Anyway, <laughs> it's time to get those digits. Siri has a few numbers that caught my eye this week. What's up first, Siri? Four thousand one hundred and fifty-two. Four thousand one hundred fifty-two. That is the number of unsafe mislabeled or banned items found on Amazon during an investigation by the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Ed, it's, it's really a, a, a riveting story. Great story, really well done. One of really the well anecdotes yeah. they're telling here is about a motorcycle helmet that somebody bought off of Amazon. I think it was a, an Atlanta Falcons helmet that it was advertised in the listing as being Department of Transportation compliant. Right. It wasn't. It was not. Guy crashes, dies, Helmet flies off. Amazon still had this helmet listed until the journal alerted was, them. Yeah, hey, was look. writing the story yes. and alerted them. Um, this is an issue, right? Because a big box retailer like a Walmart or a Target would not be allowed. Would not, they to would carry not be these carrying those things. In the store. Exactly. I think what was fascinating about the way that the story was done, that the investigation was really well done. It really highlighted an aspect of Amazon that I think, you know, when you're looking at say something like YouTube or Facebook. These guys have been dinged for basically what user-generated content, right? Mm -hmm. These sites, the whole premise of the internet is you don't need professional anything. There are people out there sounding off. That's where the media is coming from, and that's what's ge generating all the traffic and all the eyeballs. But they've also been dinged for it, right? Look at all the, not just sort of the misinformation, but the, the manipulation that's happening through these other services. It's not quite the same thing, but the idea that anyone can sell anything, this is Amazon's marketplace. That's where a lot of these things are coming right. through, represents the broader issue around just the internet in general, where everyone is a publisher, is a seller, is a vendor, and that's why you have things like this falling through the cracks and people, not just, just dangerous items, but even you know one of my colleagues at the Times wrote recently about all the fake books that are being sold on Amazon, yeah. that are books that are past our copyright or even before copyright, where people are basically recreating these books with changes, with edits even, <laughs> and selling them as authentic when they're not. Um, and it's just the, the trapdoor of the internet where there isn't enough oversight. So the bigger picture for me is when you see stuff like this and everything that's happening with the other big bank companies, if I'm in Congress, I'm like, we need, to, we need oversight. We need much more regulation on how products are sold, how, how publishers or how, how people publish on Facebook or YouTube. And I think you know, it's just going to give them more fodder to, to jump in and, and regulate these guys. And I think you're right. This lines up with the question around content on social networks also. Right. Because initially the idea was in order to grow these platforms, we have to entice people, let people put whatever they want on them. Now we're seeing the consequences of that in social networks, right. in content certainly. But we're also seeing it in retail. Now, Amazon uh, ha has told me that they are working on ways of policing these sorts of, of content abuses, certainly when it comes to counterfeiting. Our CNBC's Ari Levy has done a bunch of work on this as well. They do have a system that uh, the holders of patents can use to check and make sure that they're not being counterfeited, but that doesn't solve all these kinds of problems. And it's always an after-the-fact check, right? That's right. the problem, right? Instead of sort of whitelisting or vetting before it gets into the system, there, it's it's almost like the onus is on the consumer, right? Or or whatever sort of the the investigative reporter say, hey, look, here's this doesn't look. Oh, we're going to take that down. And I think that's where that there's a fundamental structural issue in terms of how these things are vetted, not just for Amazon, but for all these other guys we talked about as well. Uh, and that again, that that could come down to sort of a regulatory or sort of legal framework. Yeah, we we've seen it with the, uh, the the T-shirts with slogans that are not exactly kosher that right. pop up on Walmart too. It's Amazon's not alone. Right. Siri, let's get the next digit. Three thousand seven hundred percent. Three thousand seven hundred percent is the year-over-year -year growth of Baidu's smart speakers, just overtaking Google as number two in the global market. And we say global market, Ed, but I was looking into this. Really, it's China. It's the China, China market. <laughs> That's sort of it. They own yeah. that market. Google 
which has been, they've been selling their smart speaker for a while. It's not, not available in, in China. China. You can't, yeah, you can't even sell it there. So they, Baidu also lowered the price. They, they kept lowering the price. They're probably improving the product as well. I, we don't know. We haven't had hands on it ourselves. So, uh, you know, I think lowering the price and then basically having effective exclusivity in that market, the largest market in the world, at least for that for electronics right now, I mean, yeah, they're going to see 3,700% increase. Um, whether it sort of breaks out of that market, who knows? I think that, that's a fair question. And I think that's what we're seeing now with tech in general, where you're, or tech and or media, where you're seeing this sort of dual market, right? Where there's the Chinese market and then there's everything else. Mm -hmm. And as a result, China has sort of, it's owned this weird, it's a different ecosystem. So how things develop within China, whether on the internet or hardware technology, is slightly different. It's like a slightly different version of everything you're seeing, you know, um, outside of China. It's sort of the bizarro version, or maybe <laughs> outside of China is the bizarro version, whichever you want to see it. But they're sort of like weird copies or weird mimics of what we're seeing. It. Yeah. Now, first of all, I don't, I don't think I care that much about the smart speaker market from a business perspective, right? Because there's hardly any profit in it, it seems. Amazon is the biggest in this market. Right. They've been selling Echoes for a long time. They still don't break out how much money they're making. I mean, really, this is just a way to kind of seed their services business, get people using Amazon more, Baidu buy presumably the same thing. Exactly, buying things more, more readily, more quickly. They're, you know, they're, they're really trying to bake in, hey, re reorder this or I want to buy that, and I think. And there's some advertising play as well against it. So I think that is an interesting thing. Also, collecting the data, right? That's a huge right. part of what these speakers are doing and, and just what these companies are doing, including Baidu, including all the Chinese companies. So that's, that's the bigger, bigger picture. And getting into a little trouble for it as people realize, Recording, wait a yes, second, wait people a are listening when I talk? <laughs> it's not just some super smart, it's not Jarvis exactly. out there? That's what they that's, want. I think yeah. that's actually what all, like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, that's what they really want. They all want to be Tony Stark. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's Didn't Zuckerberg name his AI he in his named house his own, Jarvis? Exactly, right? He, I mean, like no imagination, right? Come on. <laughs> right? <laughs> all right. Siri, give us another digit. 33. 33. It's the number of theft and attempted theft of trade secrets counts against Anthony Lewandowski, former star engineer at Google and Uber. Um, it's interesting. This case a lot of people are arguing it's going to be hard for the government to prove, but it comes down to driverless technology yep. and the allegation that Uber, remember when Uber was bad? That Uber <laughs> was stealing the tech from Google. Through, and they hired, they hired they, they, Uber bought Anthony's company. He had his own startup called Auto, which was a self-driving technology for trucks, for, for freight, basically, freight carrying. And they basically acquired him, and along with that, acquired a lot of his... Uh, his technology and his know-how to do the same thing at Uber, to create autonomous stuff. Um, and Google was like, hold on a second, he actually worked for us and you're now taking... So what was the, the outcome of that? Uber and Google settled, right? And then they're like, okay, you thought you are done, but no, no, no. <laughs> the feds came in and said, actually, this is, this is a bigger issue. This is, he is taking technology from one side to the other. And I think that that's the thing to understand around what's happening here, which is Silicon Valley is so driven by this IP, this, this, the property, the intellectual property of, of what technology you own, uh, and it's just another flashpoint, right? And you can't just take it from one company to another, or at least it will be challenged. Uh, I'm fascinated by this. I'm fascinated that, that the feds went this far with it. I thought they, after the, the Google settlement, they would have sort of left it alone, but I think they want to set an example and I think if I'm going to stretch it a little bit, you know, the... Go ahead, whole, stretch it. We're going to stretch it. This whole, <laughs> this whole tariff fight with China, you know, a big... It's not just the money. It's not just about the trade imbalance. It's intellectual property theft. And I mm -hmm. think um, if I'm going to read into it a little too much, I think, you know, the, the DOJ wants to set, or the, the government generally wants to set a higher bar for, for intellectual property, even if it's our own citizens. Right, so, even if it's just with... That, that makes sense. I, I think also interesting here... This kind of thing historically in Silicon Valley has happened all the time. Yes. Right? Especially right. because in California, there are no non-competes. Right. Like you can't say, oh, you were at eBay, you can't go to Amazon's office in Silicon right. Valley, or you were at Google, and Google puts a non-compete so you can't go work for Apple. They can poach They can poach, other. and that happens all the time. And it was also, as you pointed out, historically, Silicon Valley was the, the place that sort of figured out this reverse engineering. We, we think of reverse engineering as just sort of a phrase, but it was an actual sort of methodology that they employed in Silicon Valley for years where they would figure out a way to transfer sort of knowledge from one person to the next 
and reverse engineer sort of things that you've seen out in the marketplace without sort of getting your hands dirty or without sort of uh, getting into legal trouble. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a place where, where technology is always sort of copied or, or stolen or, or sort of mimicked in these ways. So that, that's part and parcel of that whole, that whole industry. Some people think IP wants to be free. Yeah. All right, Siri, <laughs> give us the next digit. $198 million. $198 million. Peloton, which just filed for an IPO, posted a net loss of $47.9 million in 2018. In 2019 so far, $245.7 million. The difference is just under $198 million. <laughs> the losses in Peloton are huge, Man. which makes me a little nervous because, okay, people, I'm cheap. I'm cheap. Let me tell you what I do for exercise to get in cardio. I have an actual bicycle that I make stationary by putting it on this $100 stand that I bought from Amazon <laughs> that puts resistance on it, and I have a TV in the basement with a little Roku attached to you it, have your own and I put on a nature scene, and then I bike, See, right? You've reverse engineered your own Peloton. That's there what, you go. That's what that is. And um, there's no monthly fee. No I monthly paid 100 bucks for the stand and 50 bucks for the Roku, and, and I can ride for free. You know, we're sort of, we've re-entered this age. Remember Web 1.0 when, like, there were all these companies going public that had, like, zero revenues or little revenues or all kinds of losses to speak of? These companies now, they have real revenues. There are people paying for Peloton or, or subscribing into their monthly service, but they're also got massive losses. So, like, are we just now in a phase of that? There's WeWork as well that, that filed. Are, are we just in a phase of companies that are selling dimes for a nickel? I mean, I could set up that storefront and my revenues would be through the roof. Of I course just, everyone would want to do that. I don't so. understand how Peloton isn't ridiculously profitable. They sell you the bike, right. which is not cheap. It's not cheap, yeah. Right? More than 1000 bucks, I think. Right? And, and, and people are buying into the subscription and as well. And then they're paying a subscription after that. And it's like the most fit people, I guess, the, who have money, who are already in on this. Like, the, the people who they get next are going to be the people who want to shove this thing in a corner and who aren't going to want to, you know, stay on the plane. Right now, they have a 95% retention rate over 12 months. That's what they that said. That is actually pretty impressive. I have to say, that's an impressive figure. Except right? that they're still not making money. Even with churn that low, charging as much as they well, do. That makes th me a little concerned. I think that's the thing. I think in terms of the value argument, it's, it's still dimes for nickels. And I think the other sort of question around Peloton is how do I value this company? What kind of a company are they? Are they a hardware company like Apple with some subscription sales? Or are they like a sort of a weird media company that has hardware to sell you that stuff? So I think, you know, and then there's all these other aspects of, of what their business is and that whole like who we are as a company statement in, the, in, their, in their filing, they want to be everything. They've listed everything under the sun as what kind of company they are, which I don't think helps investors to understand like what they should buy into. So beyond the losses, I still want to know what am I buying into? Like what, are, what should I be looking for the next quarter or the next year to see where the growth is going to come from? If you want to sell, maybe you should sell the devices at a loss so that you bump up subscriptions, I don't know. So yeah. that, that part of the strategy still isn't clear. Maybe Apple should buy Peloton. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they can figure out how to make money off it. And Ed, I got an extra digit for you. Siri doesn't have to get involved. 400. That is how many police departments Amazon's doorbell camera company Ring, which they acquired, has partnered with, giving them access to residents' Amazon Ring cameras. The giving them access is actually going a bit far. They've partnered with them. The resident can say, cops, no, you don't. They'll be get alerted, access. right? Yeah. They'll be alerted. The cops want to watch, have access to your camera at a certain day and time, place, and they're asking the resident, "Can we do this?" And you can say yes or no. I actually think that's that's a great idea. Why wouldn't you take advantage? I mean, a lot of times when when cops are investigating, they're always looking for cameras. Are there cameras nearby? Mm -hmm. And then they go ask for access. This is just removing a bit of the friction. Um, I think. Part of, and as long as the, the, the homeowner is aware of that and they have the choice, I think that's the key thing. I have mixed feelings. Okay, Here's so you, why. I want to hear the other side of this. Uh, on the one hand, I like that they're asking ahead of time. Right. And if the cops come and ask me, can I you know, take a look around your neighborhood, right. uh, see your cameras, there's been some issues. Right. You know, we had some car thefts in the neighborhood right. months back because people were leaving their car, not car thefts, but thefts out of cars. People were leaving their cars unlocked and people were just going in. Getting saying, stuff right. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so I, I like it if they ask me, but if my neighbor across the street says yes, all of a sudden and I don't know spying, about it, right. and all of a sudden they've got a camera on my house all the time, and I don't know about it, I'm not sure I like that. Yeah. No, I, I think, look, there's, there's so many pitfalls to this, absolutely. I think 
it's clear that they need to see more of these contingencies out and see like, well, in that instance, what do we do? Do we have to ask a whole radius of, of neighbors for access at that point? Which effectively they might want to do anyway, just if they're trying to monitor a certain situation. I think that's fair. I think also just in general, privacy advocates, I'm sure will be like, <laughs> this is a nightmare. Um, or it could be abused in a way that could be a nightmare. And we're, we're, we're not unused to hearing law enforcement agencies, whether it's on the NSA level or even sort of on a municipal level, sort of, you know, skirting the law in terms of, you know, privacy and getting access to information that they're not otherwise requesting uh, on, a, on an appeals basis. So I think that's, yes, there's potential for all kinds of abuse, not just from law enforcement, but from hackers, right? And that's the other side of this that I think... Um, because these ring that doorbells me more than cops. exactly they're they're networked to each other through yeah. the internet and so I mean that I like cops 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 generally do a good job yeah they they're trying to they do their job rat. they want to protect yeah. if if you can help them help them great um, and you know if anything also the cameras if you think about it in in a lot of civil rights violations it's not a bad thing to have either right it's not if a bad thing to have right, but so. if there's a police car sitting across the street and there's a cop watching my house for a long period of time yeah, you're, i start you're, to wonder about that <laughs> but that's effectively what's happening if my neighbor gives the cops access to their cameras without telling me so i would like for there to be some sort of neighborhood wide notification if somebody has given the police access to their cameras at least let me know and at we're least also let me know. living in an age now where just this heightened suspicion and we see, I've seen them all the time on my, my Twitter timeline. I'm seeing these terrible video feeds of uh, cops arresting black people in their own homes. And thankfully, they've got cameras in their homes to record the incident. And you're like, yeah, that's, that's not kosher. That's not cool. So it goes both ways. But again, I think if, if there is a certain level of transparency around how these cameras are used, it could be benefit for everybody. So, Absolutely. Right. And now it's time for Hard Docs. This week's edition, just Elon Musk. Tesla's largest shareholder outside of Musk, telling German magazine manager that Elon should step down as CEO, relax his role in the day-to-day -day operations. This comes in a week that several of Tesla's solar panels, remember Solar City, caught fire on top of Walmart stores. Well, actually, not in the same week that they caught fire, but Amazon, uh, I mean, Walmart sued uh, uh, Tesla over those fires, so they're still doing business with them. Meanwhile, of course, Elon also has SpaceX, as well as the Boring Company. Arguable that he's spreading himself too thin. It's not the first time that this shareholder right. has said, hey, Elon doesn't necessarily have to be CEO back in March, March 9th, I believe. He also made that statement. No ding on him specifically, but... but you know, he can be a little erratic sometimes. He can be erratic. Also, in terms of spending his time wisely, I mean, you know, when they when they had factory issues with the with the Teslas, or not meeting their quotas or meeting their 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 targets, like he would be sleeping in the factory floor to kind of get it right. Like that's admirable. Like when you are a startup, when you're really trying to get something right. But he is responsible for several different companies, including uh, Solar City, which is now part of Tesla. I think that's where the fallout comes from. So I think if the concern is you are being spread too thin. Um, get managers in place who know what they're doing and have them sort of sort it out. I think, again, that's not the Elon Musk way, uh, mm. for better and for worse, depending upon your point of view. But, you know, I think that's, if that's where it's coming from, I think that's a legitimate, it's a legitimate criticism, it's a legitimate claim to Even step Steve off. Jobs needed Tim Cook. People forget. <laughs> People forget. Yeah, Steve Jobs a had a really rough time delivering hardware yeah. on time and on spec. The crazy until. delays he created himself as well, right? In terms of last minute changes or I don't want it to look like that. And some of them were good changes and some of them were very sort of just aesthetic. Like it kind of didn't matter, but it mattered to him. So yeah, I think, I think there's a good claim for, for why he should maybe move aside for some of those things. All right, coming up next on the podcast, it's been a while, a one-on-one -on -one with segment CEO, Peter Reinhardt. He actually started off studying practically rocket science, aerospace engineering at MIT, ended up co-founding a unicorn company that's creating a platform for data. Find out how he did that. That is up next this weekend on the podcast. Um, Peter, Reinhardt, thanks for sitting down for Fort Knox. Thanks uh, for having me. I want to talk about segment and kind of customer experience and data and all that stuff you do, but I want to get into it because a lot of people have no idea <laughs> the business of customer data is. Yep. I want to get into it, talking about the evolution of your company. Because the idea that you're working on now is not the idea that you guys started out with. 
That's so correct. you have, in some ways, a bit of a typical entrepreneur story. You're in school, you have an idea, you drop out, right? Yep. Tell, tell me about that. Who, who are you talking to, working with, uh, and what are you studying when this idea hits you? Yeah, so in 2011, I was studying aerospace engineering at MIT, and my roommates, Calvin and Ilya, were studying computer science. And we are kind of frustrated by the classroom environment. We felt like, you know, it would be awesome if we had a way to show that we were confused or frustrated or bored or out of touch or whatever with the, with the lecturer. And so we came up with this idea to build a classroom lecture tool. So the idea was to give students this button to push to say, I'm confused. And the professor would see this graph over time of how confused the students were. Mm. We thought it was a pretty cool idea. A bunch of MIT professors thought it was a cool idea. Uh, we applied to a startup incubator called Y Combinator out in Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. got in, right. uh, raised like $600,000 of funding. And then as the fall semester started, we actually deployed it into the classroom. And it was a total disaster. So, <laughs> because, because when students are confused, they disengage. They don't press a button. Exactly. And, and so they, <laughs> exactly. And so they disengage by going to Facebook and Twitter and Flickr and Gmail and everything else under the sun except paying attention to the class. So what had actually happened is we had effectively purposely deployed the most distracting thing possible into as many classrooms as possible. Because they've got a device out. Exactly. Ah. Uh, so it was, it was really bad. Professors were pretty upset. Uh, we shut down the product, called back the investors who we had just raised money from a few weeks before and asked them, what do you want us to do with the money? Mm -hmm. uh, and in true Silicon Valley fashion, they said, well, uh, you know, we really invested for the team. So go find something else. And so from there, we decided to spend about a year trying to build uh, an analytics tool. So, but why? Yeah. Right? Because, I mean, you guys were in school yeah. Yeah. before. There was a plan. Mm -hmm. You tried something else. It didn't work. Why are you like, okay, well, let's figure out something else to spend this money instead of, well, let's go back and, and try to pay more attention in class? So for us, I think Calvin, Ilya, and I, and Ian at that point, we were just committed to really working together. Mm -hmm. So we were really enjoyed the idea of building a company together. And it was hard to imagine going back to school and then transitioning back to starting a company together. And as far as going from a classroom lecture tool to um, to an analytics tool, we had felt like we should have been able to figure out that this wasn't going to work, that the, the, the classroom lecture tool wasn't going to work by looking at data, by looking at the, how people were actually using the tool. But the way that we actually figured it out was by standing in the back of the classroom. And looking at people. Exactly, and looking at their screens and counting screens. So at the beginning of class, we'd see 60% of students were not paying attention. And by the end of class, we would count screens and we'd see 80% weren't paying attention. So it was a very manual process, but we were in dozens of classrooms at that point. We were like, we should be able to figure this out by looking at a dashboard with data on it. So that was the original inspiration for building an analytics tool that would be better than the other things that were available in the market at the time. And that analytics tool was? It was called segment.io. Uh -huh. And it was all about segmentation. So segmenting how, looking at how a history class might use it differently, our tool differently than a math class or versus a computer science class. So being able to sort of segment out the data and look at how different classrooms were using the tool. So, I mean, at this point, you guys were still looking at this as an education-based thing. No, we were, we were coming out of this education lens. All right, you were coming out of it. And that. we were like, okay, but this is generally applicable. Like, this should be useful to any web-based tool. So any startup, any web company should get value out of this analytics tool that we were conceiving at the time. And right now, this is huge because SAP just bought Qualtrics, which is about being able to kind of survey or figure out from people who are navigating a website or in the process of buying something, do they like it? Um, how are they feeling about the process? This is going to work. Uh, Adobe, with its experience cloud, is competing with Salesforce and its uh, experience stuff because they want to help customers do a lot of the same thing. It's all about trying to figure out, is the customer having a good experience? Would they come back? Would they buy more? Did you see that coming? I don't think we saw that coming, hmm. no. And in fact, when you look back around this same time, there was a huge explosion of companies being founded and created and growing to solve this pain point of how do we understand how customers in a digital experience, how do we understand whether they're having a good digital experience? Mm -hmm. I guess in the old world, you had people showing up in person like we are here today, and we can read each other's facial emotions and, and so on. Um, but in a new digital world, how do, you, how do you tell whether your customer is having a good experience? You can't see whether they're successfully checking out. 
And so there's a whole ecosystem that exploded between 2010 and 2015 of all of these different tools to help digital-first companies understand their digital customers. So to put it in perspective, Qualtrics is one of the, one of the real breakouts, but there are about 7,000 companies that help in this broader ecosystem. Now, backing up again, why are you in this group? Because you mentioned they were computer science majors. Yeah. You're aerospace, yeah. right? So uh, you were interested in something else. Why aren't you at SpaceX or, or at least Tesla, right? Yeah, so I felt like MIT Aerospace was sort of preparing me to be uh, a line engineer at GE. And that's great. I love that someone out there is optimizing you know, the last few percentage points out of jet engines so that we can fly faster, cleaner uh, across the US uh, or around the world. But that wasn't for me. I was interested more in how do you build something from the ground up. So I was like convincing my aerospace professors to give me $300 to go build a, a UAV and other like fun projects where I could be the sort of creator. Uh -huh. And this to me was an opportunity to do that with two of my best friends and go start a company together, build something together. And that for me was the, the overarching driver as, a, as opposed to the topic of, of aerospace. What I like about this is right now, I mean, there's obviously a lot of things I like about this because I keep on going in different directions. But right now, we're doing a lot of encouraging students to get on certain tracks mm -hmm. um, and just kind of stay on that track, drive down that track, ignore distractions, et cetera. But you know, even though I don't know if the fact that you grew up in Seattle area and you know, Boeing or anything was, was part of uh, your vision for why you thought you were going to MIT, you were able to uh, repurpose your skills, your ideas, your drive, and go not only in a completely different direction and do a startup, but then pivot when that startup didn't work and do a different startup, right? And, and something that did end up working. Um, what is it that you think enabled you to be nimble in that way? Hmm. I think maybe it's caring more about the problem than the topic. Does that make sense? Like the thing that I really enjoy is, even today, is sitting down with a customer and wrapping my head around what is the problem that they're actually trying to solve. And I love the process of learning about that customer. What is it that they're really struggling with and why are they struggling with that? And then the process of problem solving of what could we think of that could solve that problem for that customer? And so to me, uh, aerospace certainly was an area that I had a particular passion for, uh -huh. but the more important thing was just, is there someone who has a really burning problem that we can have fun as a team solving? So I think as long as those elements are present, then I'm happy, I'm able to learn, and I'm able to you know, ingest as fast as I possibly can. Yeah. Now, it's, you've gone through this period of building this company during an unprecedented period of economic expansion. Right? Things have been going really well to the mm -hmm. point where a lot of people have forgotten about the period where I first got out of college and got into the working world, which is the very, you know, the, the, the lull before the dot-com bust. Yep. What sort of expectations do you have for the challenges that could be ahead for a company that was conceived, born, grew up during this period? I think the thing that people always talk about is in the low times, 2008, 2000, both of those financial crises, crises, the thing that makes the companies founded during those time periods often great and super successful is that they're founded almost with a certain operational rigor and operational excellence for how they make decisions and how efficiently they deploy their resources. They're depression babies. Totally. <laughs> and so I, I think the whenever the next financial crisis happens, whether it's a year from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, I think the thing that we'll sort out is which companies are able to become operationally excellent if they aren't already, um, and those that aren't. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think just like any other, that's, that's a learning process, and so the companies that can learn and adapt the fastest will be the ones that survive, and uh, I hope we're, hope we're in that group. How much do you think about that when you think about the policies that you have, what you spend money on during this period? Uh, I think operational efficiency and excellence is always something that we're thinking about. Uh, there's certainly some companies in Silicon Valley uh, who make it into the press who are uh, more sort of flagrant in, in how they spend money. I, I think the vast, vast majority of companies in Silicon Valley are very careful about their burn rate, very careful about how they deploy resources, uh, try to be operationally rigorous in, in how they go about it. I remember in 2000 writing a story for the San Jose Mercury News about how interwoven 
was giving away BMW Z3s to new recruits because that's how hard it was to get engineering talent. So, I mean, they weren't giving away to everyone, but it's kind of like a raffle. Hey, come interview and maybe you'll get a Z3. Um, what's the environment like now? Is there, is there anything wacky going on in, in that way related to um, both hiring, retaining, growing, or has it changed? I certainly haven't seen anything like that. <laughs> Sounds like quite the environment. Yeah, uh, I'm sure. I'm, yeah, I'm sure there are wacky things happening. Uh, I think the, for the most part, Silicon Valley companies are, are being fairly pragmatic. They're starting to look at okay, if it is this difficult to hire in Silicon Valley, let's start looking at building uh, offices in other locations. So you see HQ2 is popping up all over the Midwest. Um, I, I think also sort of closer to home territory, at least for us, is as we help people understand their customers better. When you think about what's required to be sort of operationally excellent or operate very rigorously, the bedrock of that is really deeply understanding your customer. Uh, and so I think whenever you see these sorts of uh, reduction in available resources or a need to really focus, I think the thing that people are going to align back to is not only sort of how much are they paying people and so on, but and how big is their staff, but also like what is the most important thing for us to focus on as a business, mm -hmm. and how does that draw back to their customers that they have today, and which customers are best. Do you aspire to be a public company? Uh, I think every startup does, so yes. Well, but some people lie about it. You know, like, <laughs> they'll be like, oh, well, we don't really think about that at all. Yeah. We just strive to serve the best needs. It's like, yeah, 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 right. Um, I, think, I think Segment is lucky. We've been lucky in that we got into a market by accident. We haven't gotten to this part of the story yet, but we got into a market by accident that turns out to be extremely large. And that market is basically helping companies understand and structure all of the customer data within their four walls. That's a huge problem for a huge number of companies all over the world. Uh, and it turns out to be a very underserved problem. And so it's a huge market opportunity for us. And when you think about what it means to be public, it means that you have the opportunity to serve a large market and that you are able to best serve that market by being independent. Mm. And I think both of those uh, are true for Segment. So Let's get to the accident. What was the accident? How did it happen? So we spent about a year trying to build this analytics tool that I mentioned earlier. Right. And it was also a total disaster, but in a different way, sort of. So this time around, what happened was no one really wanted to use our analytics tool. We couldn't get anyone to use it. And the reason was that it turns out that the analytics market is very, very saturated. I mentioned the 7,000 companies before. Right. There are literally dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of analytics tools that all do pretty much the same thing. I'm not sure why, but that's the reality. So after a year and a half now, we'd spent about 500K of our original 600K. And what year is it? This is December 2012 now. OK. And we realized that we're screwing up. We realized that this is not going not gonna to work. So we go back to Y Combinator, Incubator, and Advisors, um, and meet with Paul Graham, our mentor there, and, and ask him sort of bring him up to speed on everything. And he sort of stops. We're on a walk together. He stops, and he looks at us, and he's like, so just to be clear, you spent half a million dollars and you have nothing to show for it. <laughs> and I think that was the low point for us uh, where we realized that you know, we sort of had one more shot with the 100K that we had left in the bank and uh, we had to make good of it. So pause there, rewind back to the very first week of Y Combinator, the incubator, in June 2011, so a year and a half prior. And we were trying to build our classroom lecture tool. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were like, well, we should have analytics on this thing. So we Googled it and we found the sort of top analytics tools. We couldn't figure out which one we wanted to use because they were all the same. And so rather than installing one of the analytics tools, like rather than making the business decision about which one to use, we decided to just build a little piece of code that could send data to all three. So in other words, it sort of allowed, was the pipes for where we could put data. Right. And over time, we improved this and improved this. We eventually open sourced it. People started using it, adopting it on GitHub and commenting on it and helping maintain and improve this piece of code. But you would let it go. Yeah, we were you weren't paying it attention was way that. in the background, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, Knock yourself out, kids. It was 500 lines of code that we had written among 500,000 lines of code. Like, it was right. uninteresting. Uh -huh. Get to December, we have this conversation with Paul Graham. We realize we get one more shot. And my co-founder, Ian, is like, you know what? I think there's a big business behind Analytics.js, this little piece of code that does this data piping. And I was like, that is literally the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> it's, five, it's 500 lines of code. Right. It's nothing. And it's already open source. So like, people can already have free access to it. <laughs> I don't understand how that's a good business idea at all. Mm -hmm. 
So we fought about it all day long, and I finally convinced uh, my co-founders that we should build a landing page, a little website that would pitch the value of this piping tool. And then we would post it to Hacker News, which is sort of the developer community. So we did that, put it up on, on Hacker News, and I was thinking, like, okay, we're done here, like, moving on. You proved him wrong. Exactly. Right. Uh, and meanwhile, it goes, gets voted straight up to the top of the Hacker News community, gets uh, hundreds of upvotes, gets thousands of email signups, thousands of stars on GitHub. So it was just like the community reaction to this is insanely positive. People were reaching out to us via LinkedIn, demanding access to a beta version of this data piping tool, which didn't exist. So the whole thing kind of blew up in my face in all the right ways. Um, and from there, it was, it was pretty straightforward uh, to, to build a business on it. We spent the next five days, launched the first hosted version of these pipes. Uh, and by the end of December 2012, we had about 70 companies sending data through our pipes. What's the Aesop's Fables uh, moral of the story there for you as a CEO? The most interesting thing, I think, was that finding product market fit is extremely difficult. And in fact, having a skeptic in the room, I think, helps. I think a lot of founders go through this, uh, go through the world with sort of blinders on, where they just believe in their, in their vision, and no one around them is skeptical of it, and then it fails. So like 80% of all startups fail. But in that situation, who's yeah. the skeptic? It seems like everybody is. Well, in this case, Ian and Calvin were the two who really believed in it. Uh -huh. And in this case, I was skeptical. And being skeptical forced this instantaneous test, because uh -huh. I wasn't going to be a, a part of the this group if I didn't think it was a good idea. And so within the founding team, having a skeptic that forces a good test of the idea, I think is critical. But uh, at the same time, he was skeptical enough, as were all of you at this point, to say, okay, our, our original idea is yeah. not going to work, yes. right? So we have to do something else. How about this? Yep. Um, your skepticism could have been disqualifying. Totally. If you hadn't... If it hadn't been matched by equal optimism on the other side. Well, but... Disqualifying for you, I would think, as being the CEO, if you hadn't tested out the idea for sure. that you thought was going to fail. For sure. As a CEO, what has that taught you? Certainly a healthy dose of humility, because the first two <laughs> ideas had been mine, and the third one was the one that I argued against, so I was wrong three times in a row. Um, I think it's uh, ultimately the lesson is the customer is always right, which is maybe a tried and true maxim. but. Uh, no way around it. In the past few months, you've taken the risky but necessary step of expanding segment out of the core market that you originally served into doing some additional things. So you've run into, again, that question of product market fit. Mm -hmm. How did you tackle it differently this time? The main thing is that we really try not to have strong opinions internally and we try to validate them as strongly as we can with customers. So that means our product managers and engineers and marketers are out in the field meeting with customers and constantly testing, does this idea that we have, would it really deliver value to you? And that means actually getting a customer to say, yes, I would pay X amount of money for this thing. And so why don't we tell people point. what it is that you're building, sure. too, so we're not so <laughs> abstract. What is, as you're building new things in segment, what is it? What are you doing that's, that's different? Yeah, so we, we, we build something called customer data infrastructure. So we help companies manage all of the data within their four walls. And that means taking data from their websites and their mobile apps and their help desks and CRMs, all these different digital customer touch points that they have with their customers. We pull all of that data through our pipes and fan it out to all of the business applications where they use it downstream. So we're the pipes effectively that stitch together a digital experience that you would have. Um, you can imagine in an ideal world, you might go to the ATM and the ATM would be aware that you had just opened the mobile app and maybe just tried, made a mobile deposit. Or you would go to a teller and they would be aware that you just encountered an error on the ATM. Right, the sort of stitching together of the, these digital experiences is not what's, what happens today, uh, but it's what should happen. And so we're the pipes that provide that. Uh, and so from those pipes then we've expanded to uh, a few other different arenas. So we've expanded to uh, helping people actually build good marketing campaigns on top of that underlying data. We've expanded to data governance, so helping companies manage the cleanliness of the data that they're collecting. What does that mean? Most people don't know dirty data, clean data, <laughs> right? Yeah, so you can imagine um, getting an email that has nothing to do with, with what you've seen before or seeing the ad many, many times for something that you already bought. Mm -hmm. These are examples of the sort of experiences that happen on the back end of 
data that has gotten unclean or has gotten mismanaged. Uh, and it needs to be solved actually at the source uh, where the data is first collected. And so that's where we help. Mm. Right now there's a lot of controversy around how people's data gets mm -hmm. used. Um, I, I know that you're aware of and tracking kind of creepy things that companies sometimes do with data that really make people feel like they're being stalked, followed around the web and, and their experiences. As a matter of fact, um, one of the anchors at CNBC and I were just talking about that this morning. She's um, going to have a, a baby in the not too distant future and you know she, she feels like Instagram figured that out and shouldn't have been able to figure it out. How do they figure it out? What needs to happen differently, even as people, as customers use tools like Segment to know extremely granular details about customers and anticipate their needs? What needs to happen to make sure that it doesn't get creepy, creepier, and that there are protections? So I think the strongest dichotomy that you can draw is between what I would call gossip and relationship building. So if you think about companies who are sharing data with each other, this is like you go to one website and then you go to another website and you see that the two have exchanged data between them. Mm. Or it'd be like going to the baker and then going to the deli and then going to the pharmacy and they all know what you purchased at all the other places. That's gossip. Uh, it's very disempowering. It feels very sketchy. It feels like you're being stalked. That fundamental data exchange between the people that you're interacting with or the companies that you're interacting with that, I think, is where it's very, very creepy. On the flip side, if you think about great experiences that people have talked about for decades, like going into Nordstrom, and there's someone who is your account rep who's known you for a long time, who helps you pick out what clothes work well for your wardrobe, mm. that's a really strong experience. That's a really wonderful experience. And the reason is that you're interacting with the same person. You have an expectation that they actually know something about you because you interacted with them previously. Similarly, you might go into a bank branch and the bank branch manager may know a bunch of things about you. That's actually okay because you keep interacting with them. But the issue comes when you break the walls between companies and they start gossiping with each other. Right. So our position is that we're very interested in helping companies manage all the data within their four walls and helping them use that data to deliver a better customer experience internally. Uh, and we're very philosophically against helping anyone exchange data between companies. Well, Peter, it's been a great conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.